Hello, and welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Connor. Thank you, as always, for listening. Before we begin today, I am pleased to announce that I've officially launched a Patreon for this podcast. If you contribute $5 a month, you can gain access to all sorts of different bonus content, things that don't quite fit into the regular scope of this show, but things that I nevertheless want to share with you all. The first bonus episode is a reading of an academic paper I wrote back in 2019 on the subject of the cult of chastity in late imperial China. In the future, I plan to upload various other things, such as readings of historically relevant primary sources, discussions of fun historical anecdotes and hypotheticals, and interviews with other historians. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. A link will be available in this episode's description. Anyway, without further ado... In the last episode of our series on the Haitian Revolution, we watched as revolution broke out in France in 1789. As news of the revolutionary events in Paris reached the shores of the colony of Saint-Domingue, each of the colony's distinct social, economic, and racial classes conspired, fought, and died to take advantage of the upheaval and to make their respective visions of the revolution into reality. As you should know by now, there were four distinct groups of people living on Saint-Domingue on the eve of the revolution the big whites, the small whites, the free people of color, and the slaves. The big whites, the merchants, financiers, plantation managers, officials, and owners of large plantations were split on the issue of how to respond to the revolution. They were split between factions of royalists and more moderate revolutionaries. The moderate revolutionaries' power base was the Provisional Assembly of the North, based out of the city of Le Cap. The members of the Northern Provisional Assembly were pushing for more autonomy from France, and the abolition of the exclusive, the mercantile policy that mandated that Saint-Domingue's trade may only be conducted with metropolitan France. They stopped short of advocating for complete independence from France, but if the radicals in the French National Assembly continued to push the question of slavery, they might very well be pushed in the direction of independence. The royalist faction consisted of men with close ties to the colonial bureaucracy and to the aristocracy in metropolitan France. France was, despite all the revolutionary goings-on there, still a monarchy as of 1791. Thus, the royalists in Saint-Domingue, too, were not yet willing to go so far as to declare independence. For now, their main priority was maintaining some semblance of order in the colony. They were assisted in this effort by the free people of color. The free people of color, a relatively wealthy group of people of at least partial African ancestry, had long been disenfranchised by the big whites of Saint-Domingue, on the basis that to grant them rights would undermine the system of white supremacy that undergirded Saint-Domingue society. When the revolution reached Saint-Domingue, the free people of color were left vulnerable to attacks by the small whites. The small whites, lacking in property and most similar in disposition to the Jacobin revolutionaries of metropolitan France, railed against the power and privilege of the big whites and of the property-owning class of free people of color. The small white revolutionaries, coalescing in the colonial assembly centered on the town of St. Mark, declared their opposition to the free people of color, and intended to exterminate them and expropriate their property. Victimized by the small white revolutionaries, the free people of color joined forces with the counter-revolution on Saint-Domingue. Together, this makeshift alliance marched on St. Mark and dispersed the colonial assembly there, breaking the power of the small white revolutionaries for the time being. But, While the free inhabitants of Saint-Domingue fought against themselves, a much larger threat was looming. The slaves of the colony, who outnumbered free men by a ratio of three to one, were preparing to rise up. 
Meanwhile, in Paris, the cause of the free people of color was fought for by the men of the Society of the Friends of the Blacks, a relatively small but passionate political organization, which counted among its ranks some of the most influential revolutionary figures of the day. In this period, the Society of the Friends of the Blacks' primary goal was securing the civil and political rights of the free people of color. The free people of color owned property and paid taxes. Therefore, why shouldn't they have the same rights as the whites who did the same? It was contrary to the revolutionary ideals espoused in the 1789 Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen to exclude this entire caste of people from said rights only on the basis of their skin color. Only the most radical members of the society, such as the Abbe Gregoire, were advocating for the rights of slaves, at least at this juncture. The principal opponents of the Society of the Friends of the Blacks was the Masayak Club, a small but powerful political lobby of wealthy Saint-Domingue planters and other wealthy individuals, whose fortunes depended on the status quo of the colony being maintained. Like their counterparts back in Saint-Domingue, they believed that to grant rights to any free person of color would inevitably lead the colony to ruin. They were determined to shut down any and all discussion of questions of the colonies, of race, and especially of slavery, in the National Assembly. They were largely successful in this goal, at least at first, until 1790, when a free man of color named Vincent Auger pressed the issue. Vincent Auger was a fairly well-off plantation owner from northern Saint-Domingue. In the early days of the revolution, he traveled to Paris with a delegation of other free people of color to petition the Masayak Club and the National Assembly at large to support rights for his people. The best the National Assembly could do was write up a vaguely worded decree granting full rights to all quote-unquote citizens, while not specifying who exactly qualified as a citizen. When the decree of March 8th, as it was called, reached Saint-Domingue, the local authorities refused to enforce it altogether. Feeling as though he had exhausted all legal recourse, Auger returned to Saint-Domingue in October 1790 with a massive cache of weapons purchased in the United States. Raising an army of about 1,000 free men of color, Auger threatened the Provisional Assembly of the North to enforce the March 8th decree according to his stipulations, lest they face his vengeance. Auger's nascent rebellion was crushed in only a matter of days. He and his co-conspirators were captured and executed in public and brutal fashion in early 1791. Auger's death had a particularly painful effect on the community of free people of color. Here was a man, eloquent and outspoken, once the pride of the community, fighting for their rights in both Saint-Domingue and France, and this is how their oppressors responded to him. Auger's death prompted the uprising of several hundred more free people of color across Saint-Domingue. Determined not to repeat Auger's most critical mistake, these rebels freed limited numbers of slaves and armed them to fight on their behalf. Auger's death also had repercussions in Paris. Many in the National Assembly were sympathetic to his cause, and were particularly appalled at the brutal method of his execution. Auger had become a martyr, not only for the free people of color on Saint-Domingue, but for the representatives in Paris who fought on their behalf in the National Assembly. The Masayak Club, which had so far managed to so successfully control the narrative regarding the colonies, was soon beginning to lose its clout. With Saint-Domingue teetering on the brink of all-out civil war, the National Assembly could no longer afford to ignore the colonial question. At the suggestion of the Abbé Grégoire, a great debate was held on the issue in the National Assembly between May 7th and May 12th of 1791. This debate would pit the wealthy planters and merchants of the Masayak Club against the members of the Society of the Friends of the Blacks, 
and their allies, the increasingly powerful Jacobins. The members of the Masayak Club deployed their usual rhetorical devices. They argued that giving rights to the free people of color would erode the master's control over the slaves, and threaten the stability of the colony. Furthermore, they argued that metropolitan France had absolutely no right to legislate for the colonies. But their old tricks would no longer work as they used to. It was on the last day of this debate that Maximilien Robespierre, leader of the Jacobin Club, gave one of his most famous speeches. Quote, If I should suspect that among those who have opposed rights for the free men of color, there was any one of you who detested liberty and the Constitution, I would believe that they are merely seeking ways and means of attacking with success your decrees and principles. Whenever a question arises in which the interest of the metropolis directly connected, they will tell you. You urge without ceasing the rights of man, but you believe in them so little yourselves that you have sanctified slavery constitutionally. The supreme interest of the nation and of the colonies is that you remain free, and that you do not overturn with your own hands the foundation of liberty. Perish the colonies if the price is to be your happiness, your glory, and your liberty. I repeat, perish the colonies if the colonists wish by menaces to force us to decree that which is not in our interests. I declare in the name of the assembly, the name of those members of the assembly who do not wish to overturn the constitution, and the name of the entire nation that desires freedom, that we will sacrifice to the colonial deputies neither the nation, nor the colonies, nor the whole of humanity. End quote. Brilliant as Robespierre's speech was, he was by no means arguing for abolition. In fact, he had argued that granting rights to property owners of color would actually shore up the master's control over their slaves. In the end, Robespierre's arguments carried the day. The National Assembly was still a long way away from open talk of abolition, but the Society of the Friends of the Blacks had secured a major victory, at last. This victory was soon mitigated afterwards. The Masaya Club was willing to make a concession to the free people of color, but not a very large one. It was proposed that each free person of color, who had been born to two free parents, be granted the franchise. Even many at the time recognized that this proposal would only affect some 400 or so people. But, nevertheless, while this was not a huge concession in terms of immediate effects, its implications were enormous. Because once one person of African descent was granted rights, it would only be a matter of time, and work, before the rest of them would receive them. All the while, the slaves of Sandoman continued laboring away, watching, waiting for their moment to strike. And crucially, they began to organize. In the sweltering late summer days of 1791, slaves from across the northern plain of Sandoman held massive secret gatherings. These slaves were mainly domestics and other privileged slaves who had been granted permission from their masters to travel from their plantations for whatever reason. These slaves were able to command the respect of the field slaves, and it was their roles as leaders of the coming insurrection that, in large part, led to its success. At an early one of these meetings, a slave read aloud what he claimed was a proclamation from the mainland. He claimed that the king and the National Assembly had granted more rights to slaves, including prohibiting the use of the whip for punishments and granting two free days a week instead of just one. But the masters, who allegedly had full knowledge of this, were refusing to implement these reforms. These rumors were exactly just that, rumors. Neither the National Assembly nor the King had actually made such reforms. Nevertheless, the slaves resolved that if their masters were unwilling to grant them the rights that they believed they were owed, they would rise up and take them for themselves. 
Similar rumors had inspired unsuccessful slave uprisings in the French colony of Martinique back in 1789. Plans were laid. Previous experience had shown that isolated acts of rebellion could be quickly suppressed, so the slaves began to coordinate. On the night of August 24, 1791, slaves from Le Cap and its suburbs were to set fire to the cane fields in the surrounding plantations. The flames and smoke from the burning cane fields was to be a sign to the slaves on said plantations to rise up, kill their masters, and finish putting their plantations to the torch. This plan involved careful coordination between hundreds of slaves. That the plan remained secret to the last minute is a testament to their solidarity. On August 21st, the Sunday before the plan was to be set in motion, the ringleaders of this vast conspiracy met for one last time in the woods of bois Caimon, a forest on the outskirts of the town of Le Cap. C.L.R. James painted a rather vivid portrait of the scene there that night, quote, On the night of the 21st, a tropical storm raged, with lightning and gusts of wind and heavy showers of rain. Carrying torches to light the way, the leaders of the revolt met in an open space in the thick forest of Morne Rouge, a mountain overlooking Le Cap, end quote. It was here that a voodoo ceremony would be performed to inaugurate the rebellion. The ceremony was led by two people, a voodoo priestess named Cecile Fatiman, and the leader of a band of maroons named Dutty Bukman. Fatiman was the daughter of an enslaved African mother and a nobleman from Corsica. She was a mambo, or priestess of voodoo. After co-leading the proceedings at Bois-Caimon, she would go on to marry a general in the Haitian army named Jean-Louis Perrault, who would then go on to serve as president of the Haitian Republic. Fatiman had familial connections to other prominent figures of Haitian history as well. Dutty Bukman was an African-born slave who found himself in Saint-Domingue by way of British Jamaica. His master back in Jamaica had caught him several times attempting to teach his fellow slaves how to read, thus earning him the name Bukman. After being sold to a new owner in Saint-Domingue, his intellect made him a suitable candidate for the role of coach driver. Bukman was able to take advantage of his master's trust, and escaped into the mountains of Saint-Domingue, where he soon became the leader of a band of maroons, as well as a prominent hugan, or voodoo high priest. Before the religious ceremony began, Bukman gave detailed instructions to the slaves. Then, Fatiman slit the throat of a black pig, and Bukman drank its blood. He then offered up a prayer, which I will now read in full, quote, The God who created the sun which gives us light, who rouses the waves and rules the storm, though hidden in the clouds, he watches us. He sees all the white man does. The God of the white man inspires him with crime, but our God calls on us to do good works. Our God, who is good to us, orders us to avenge our wrongs. He will direct our arms and aid us. Throw away the symbol of the God of the whites, who has so often caused us to weep, and listen to the voice of liberty, which speaks in the hearts of us all. End quote. The Bois-Caimon ceremony is generally regarded as being the starting point, the catalyst, of the Haitian Revolution. Despite its perceived importance, however, historians know very little about it definitively. The closest thing to an eyewitness source that has come down to us was the account of one Antoine Dalma, a doctor at a nearby plantation estate. Dalma's account, written shortly after the slave revolt kicked off three days later, is colored with all the prejudices of an upper-class white person of this time period. Delma does not refrain from letting his audiences know exactly how he felt about the ceremony, writing, quote, It was natural that such a primitive and ignorant caste, 
would begin the most terrible attack with the superstitious rites of an absurd and bloodthirsty religion. End quote. As time went on, more and more details were grafted onto Damas' initial account of the event by those who were retelling the story. Historian Laurent Dubois is keen to remind his readers that the ceremony of Wakeman is not meant to be interpreted in such a literal sense. He writes, quote, Thus, Bois-Kémon remains a symbol of the achievements of the slave insurgents of Saint-Domingue, a symbol not of a specific event whose details we can pin down, but rather of the creative, spiritual, and political epic that both prompted and emerged from the 1791 insurrection. End quote. In any event, the importance of the Bois-Kémon ceremony, both as a catalyst for the Haitian Revolution and as a founding event of the voodoo religion, cannot be overstated. Although it had been agreed well in advance that the slave insurrection was to begin on August 24th, some of the more eager conspirators got to work the very night of the ceremony at Bois-Kémon. The Galafay plantation just outside Le Cap was among the first to go up in flames. The Galafay plantation, owned by its absentee landlord, the Marquis de Galafay, was one of the largest and most famed sugar plantations in all Saint-Domingue. There was a common saying in Saint-Domingue, as sweet as Galafay sugar, Another purported saying of Saint-Domingue's inhabitants was, as happy as a negro from Galafay. It is admittedly true that the slaves on the Galafay plantation had it a bit better than others. Their living quarters were relatively modern and well-maintained, and a system of aqueducts delivered fresh, clean water directly to the slaves' domiciles. But, while their living conditions were marginally better than on other plantations, the happy slaves of Galafay nevertheless led the way in the Haitian Revolution. They murdered their masters and set the plantation ablaze. The Galafay plantation's manager wrote to the Marquis back in France, quote, Your houses, Mr. Marquis, are nothing but ashes. Your belongings have disappeared. Your administrator is no more. The insurrection has spread its devastation and carnage onto your properties. End quote. Roving bands of armed slaves, armed with firearms, agricultural implements, and torches, went from plantation to plantation, killing whites, looting houses, and setting cane fields alight. They also sought to destroy, quote, every material manifestation of their existence under slavery and its exploitation, end quote. They destroyed everything, sugar processing mills, manufacturing installations, farm equipment and tools, even their own living quarters. As they did this, newly freed slaves eagerly flocked to join their ranks. The insurrection pit got momentum very quickly. As slaves across the northern plains saw the flames of the cane fields, they understood the signal. They followed suit, killing their masters and setting their own fields alight before going on to join other insurgent bands. In this way, the insurgents' ranks quickly swelled. Estimates placed their numbers anywhere between 20 and 80,000 by the end of September 1791. Before long, the former slaves had come to dominate nearly all of northern Saint-Domingue, save for the city of Le Cap itself. The sugar plantations of the north, once the economic powerhouse of the island and the pride of the French Empire, were reduced to smoke and ashes. In the first week of the rebellion alone, the insurgents managed to sack over 180 sugar plantations, as well as some 1,000 coffee plantations. On the morning of August 23rd, a seemingly deranged white man rode into Le Cap on the back of a horse. He lacked both shoes and a hat, but he had a sword in his hand. He reportedly called out, quote, to arms, citizens. Our brothers are being slaughtered and our properties are being burned. All the slaves of the plain are advancing with fire and iron in hand. End quote. At first, the residents of Le Cap took his rantings to be those of a madman. 
but very soon they would see for themselves that he was telling the truth. So great was the conflagration on the northern plain that the smoke literally blotted out the sun. For several days, the bewildered inhabitants of Lacap could not distinguish day from night. One eyewitness report read, quote, The fire, which they spread to the sugarcane, to all the buildings, to their houses and huts, covered the sky with burning clouds of smoke during the day, and at night lit up the horizon with aurora borealis, that projected far away the reflection of so many volcanoes, and gave all objects a livid tint of blood. End quote. C.L.R. James described the scene thusly, quote, one half of the famous northern plain was a flaming ruin. From Le Cap, the whole horizon was a wall of fire. From this wall rose continually black, thick volumes of smoke, through which came tongues of flame leaping to the very sky. For nearly three weeks, the people of Le Cap could barely distinguish day from night, while a rain of burning cane straw, driven before the wind like flakes of snow, flew over the city and the harbor, threatening both with destruction. End quote. It must have seemed like the apocalypse, like hell had come to earth. A stream of white refugees fled into Le Cap in advance of the insurgents' onslaught. This early stage of the slave insurrection was notable for being the most brutal phase of a particularly brutal conflict. The former slaves unleashed 300 years of pent-up aggression on those who had held them in bondage for so long. They killed nearly every white person they came across, men, women, children, the elderly, all alike. The men they subjected to torture similar to those that they had endured under the yoke of slavery. The women they violated mercilessly, often over the still bleeding bodies of their husbands, brothers, and sons. It was said that one band of rebels carried as their battle standard a white infant impaled on a pike. But whether this particular detail is factual or just hyperbole on the part of the primary sources is hard to say. As the revolt continued, however, tempers began to subside and the former slaves restrained themselves from committing such acts of brutality. This is the basis of C.L.R. James' rather controversial claim that the rebels were, in his words, surprisingly moderate. As they continued to take over plantations, they spared the women and children, as well as the priests, whose spiritual power they feared, and the surgeons, whose skills would be useful for the rebels in the days to come. The colonists of Saint-Domingue, having been caught off guard, scrambled to organize a response to this turn of events. Although there was nothing they feared more than a slave uprising, the colonists of Saint-Domingue constantly underestimated the insurgents in these early days. Many thought that they would be able to put down the slave uprising as quickly as they had put down the Free People of Color's rebellion under Vincent Auger. But the slave insurgents, unlike the Free People of Color, did not fight according to European standards. Although the term would not be coined until the Peninsular War two and a half decades later, the slave insurgents of Saint-Domingue fought in the manner of guerrilla warfare. European-style battles of this era typically involved rows of soldiers standing in a line and shooting at one another. However, the slaves, many of whom were well-versed in the martial traditions of Africa, fought in an entirely different manner. Instead of fighting out in the open, they hid behind cover, foliage, buildings, anything that was available. They spread out, not concentrating their numbers, and operated in relatively small and autonomous bands. They fired from prone positions and, after inflicting a number of casualties on a bewildered enemy force, they would quickly retreat into the shadows before they could respond in kind. And just as the enemy began to regain their footing, they would then be subjected to yet another ambush. Due to the nature of the tactics utilized by the slave insurgents, there were relatively few traditional set-piece battles during the Haitian Revolution. 
In the interest of fairness, it merits mentioning that the colonists in their response to the slave revolt were comparably ruthless against their opponents. It was, as Laurent Dubois phrases it, a war of extermination. Quote, the country is filled with dead bodies which lie unburied. The Negroes have left the whites with stakes driven through them into the ground, and the white troops, who now take no prisoners but kill everything black or yellow, leave the Negroes dead upon the ground. The heads of white prisoners, placed on stakes, surrounded the camps of the blacks, and the corpses of black prisoners were hung from trees along the roads that led to the positions of the whites. End quote. Twenty to thirty black captives, insurgents or otherwise, were publicly executed in the Lacap City Square every day. Every slave that white soldiers came across in the countryside was summarily executed, regardless of whether or not they had been captured under arms. Even slaves who remained on their plantations and had not yet gone into revolt were massacred. This strategy of total warfare ended up backfiring, as slaves who had yet to rebel came to realize that their only hope of survival was rebellion, and so more and more slaves ran off to join the insurgent armies. In the scenario, neutrality was near certain death. In early November 1791, Dutty Buchmann, the voodoo priest who had provided crucial leadership in the run-up to the revolution, was killed in battle. He was decapitated, his body was burned, and his severed head was displayed on a pike in Le Cap. The power vacuum left in the wake of Buchmann's untimely death was quickly filled. By the end of 1791, the insurgents had coalesced into three main armies, led by their commanders Jean-Francois Papillon, Georges Biassou, and Jeannot Boulet. Perhaps it was destiny that these three men in particular would become leaders in this early stage of the revolution. Cecile Fadiman, co-practitioner of the Bois-Caimon ceremony, is said to have prophesied that the upcoming uprising would be led by these three men in particular. We will now discuss Jean-Francois, Biassou, and Jeannot briefly. Whether Jean-Francois Papillon was a native of Africa or of Saint-Domingue is a matter of debate. What is known for certain is that he was a slave in a position of relative privilege thanks to his exceptional intellect. At some point, he escaped from slavery and joined a band of Maroons, eventually becoming their leader. C.L.R. James describes Jean-Francois as, quote, good-looking, very intelligent, and possessed of a proud spirit. He was very brave, very sober, and of a tenacity that never admitted defeat, end quote. Georges Biassou provides an interesting contrast in terms of personality. C.L.R. James describes him as, quote, a fire-breather, always drunk, and always ready for the fiercest and most dangerous exploits." End quote. That Biasu was born in Saint-Domingue is certain. He remained enslaved up until the eve of the revolt, although up until that point he was in a relatively privileged position as a coach driver. Of the three leaders of the early revolution, Jeannot Boulet was the odd man out. Jeannot is described across all sources as a cruel, sadistic person, whose excessive cruelty even alienated the other insurgents. An account comes down to historians from a Frenchman named Gabriel Legros, captured by Jeannot, who was lucky enough to have survived the ordeal. Quote, we were chained two by two and put in the middle of a strong escort of blacks to be taken to the brigands' headquarters. Leaving our homes in this distressing state, we saw our most valuable possessions go up in smoke. These barbarians set fire to the district in an instant, and we marched by the light of the flames. The scoundrels took pleasure in forcing us to gaze at the mutilated bodies of our brothers, and in regaling us with the atrocities that they would subject us to upon reaching our destination. All along the way, 
elderly black men and women gathered at all the plantation entrances to humiliate us with insults and boast of the exploits of their warriors, who were continually beating us with sticks. End quote. Upon reaching their destination, Chanot subjected his unfortunate white captives to torture and mutilation. Gross describes prisoners being subjected to hundreds of strikes of the whip at a time, more than enough to result in death. He treated his prisoners like animals, chopping them to bits or slitting open their throats and hanging them upside down to bleed them out. Gross described that one day, as they were awaiting their imminent execution, being roasted to death on a spit, they heard fighting in the distance. To their surprise, it was not the whites who had come to their rescue, but none other than Jean-Francois. Apparently, Jean-Francois had heard of Jeannot's excesses and was determined to put a stop to them. He had Jeannot arrested, tied to a pole, and shot. Gabrielle Legros, having been saved from the cruelty of Jeannot by Jean-Francois, went on to serve as the insurgent general's secretary. Most of the leaders of the insurrection, having formerly been slaves, were illiterate, so they utilized the literary abilities of free men of color and captive whites to write orders, declarations, correspondences, and the like. The early insurgent armies were a remarkably heterogeneous group. The ethnic diversity that existed among the slaves has already been discussed at length in the first episode of the series. Slaves came from all parts of West and Central Africa, the Congo, Senegambia, Greater Guinea, and so on. While African-born slaves made up two-thirds of all slaves on Saint-Domingue, American-born slaves, also known as Creoles, made up a strong contingent of the insurgent army. Additionally, a smaller number of free men of color had joined the ranks of the insurgents as well. These were mainly younger men from the cities. While their skills as militiamen and craftsmen were highly valued by the other insurgents, they often balked at the insurgents' excesses. Unconfirmed eyewitness reports also assert that among the insurgents' ranks were an unknown number of white men, who had donned black face paint as a show of solidarity with their African comrades. Women also played important roles in the rebellion. While most stayed behind in the insurgents' camps and played traditional roles such as cooks, medics, and whatnot, others joined the men on the battlefield. In reading the reports of white soldiers who encountered these female combatants, one is struck by how petrified they seem to be of them, many more so than the men. Initially, at least, the slaves were motivated by the twofold goals of winning their freedom and exterminating the whites. However, in the back of their minds, their leaders, especially Jean-Francois and Biassou, recognized that the latter of these two goals was untenable. There is evidence to suggest that the two leaders thought of themselves as hostages to the will of the men that they led. They would have been willing to reach some sort of settlement with the whites, but they knew that the rank and file would turn on them at the first sign of such a betrayal. So Jean-Francois and Biassou bided their time, but in the meantime, they began to cultivate an image of legitimacy for themselves and their armies. Jean-Francois and Biassou decked themselves out and their officers in uniforms, ribbons, and medals taken from their dead opponents. They also adopted European titles. For example, Jean-Francois styled himself rather extravagantly as Admiral Generalissimo and Knight of the Order of St. Louis. Biassou took on the more humble title, Viceroy of the Conquered Territory. Rhetorically, they represented themselves as soldiers of the king, and repeatedly invoked the authority of the king in their declarations. The royalist tendencies of the slave insurgents, paradoxical as they may seem at first, begin to make much more sense upon closer examination. Traditionally, the king and the executors of his authority in Saint-Domingue had been moderating forces against popular racism. Many slaves can recall the royal decrees of the 1780s, which granted them more rights, such as the right to two free days a week as opposed to just one. In fact, ever since the outbreak of the revolution, 
Rumors had been going around that the king had abolished slavery entirely, but the masters were refusing to go along with it. Such rumors, if you will recall, were addressed at the Bois-Caimon ceremony, and were a primary motivator of the slave revolt in the first place. At the same time, as the revolution progressed, the colonial assemblies began to pop up. The slaves correctly saw the various colonial assemblies as institutions which sought to keep them in chains. And so, in the minds of many slaves, the monarchy represented freedom and rights, while the revolution and its assemblies represented the continuation of slavery. But what about the revolutionary ideals of liberty, equality, and fraternity, and of the rights of man and citizen? No doubt these things played a role in inspiring the slave revolt. Captured insurgents were occasionally found with revolutionary pamphlets printed in France on their person. Indeed, the former slaves were more than capable of interpreting Enlightenment ideals and utilizing them to advance their own interests. This simultaneous evocation of both the authority of the king and of the rights of man was not even necessarily contradictory, as France was, up until late 1792, nominally a constitutional monarchy. In fact, this sort of ideological syncreticism continued in Saint-Domingue well after the declaration of the French Republic. Insurgent leaders continued to use royalist and republican symbols interchangeably. One French soldier reported in 1793 that the battle flag of one insurgent leader was the tricolor flag of the republic, with the fleur-de-lis, a monarchist symbol, in the center. It was also around this time that the insurgents began to cultivate ties with the Spanish. It must be remembered that the French colony of Saint-Domingue only comprised the western third of the island of Hispaniola, and that the remainder of the island was the Spanish colony of Santo Domingo. The Spanish were watching the developments in French Saint-Domingue with great interest. No doubt the Spanish were eager at the opportunity to destabilize French Saint-Domingue, in hopes of eventually reclaiming the colony for themselves. To this end, Spanish army officers on the border between the two colonies conducted business with the insurgents. In exchange for loot stolen from destroyed plantations, the Spanish provided arms and ammunition, giving the insurgents much-needed military materiel. This sort of trade sustained the insurgents' war effort, and Dubois asserts that it was one of the main reasons that the revolt was successful as it was in these early days. Meanwhile, tensions between the whites and the free people of color had reached a breaking point. In early August 1791, that is to say before the outbreak of the slave revolt in the north, the free people of color staged a rebellion of their own in the western province, where most of their numbers were concentrated. The free people of color of the western province first organized an assembly with the intention of petitioning the National Assembly in Paris for rights. In response, the governor of Saint-Domingue ordered the assembly to be dissolved. The free people of color there and then resolved to take up arms against the whites. Many of them had prior military experience, as the free people of color almost exclusively made up the ranks of the colony's internal police force, a job that the whites saw as being beneath them. Among these veterans was one André Rigaud someone who will be quite important in our narrative going forward. Rigaud was born to a wealthy plantation owner, whose name was coincidentally also André Rigaud, and a slave woman that he owned. The elder Rigaud acknowledged the child as his own, and, as was typical, he had the boy sent to metropolitan France to study. Rigaud studied goldsmithing in the city of Bordeaux. Upon returning to Saint-Domingue, Rigaud volunteered for the Marquis d'Estating's regiment to fight the British in North America. He, like many other free men of color, fought in the Siege of Savannah with distinction. Rigaud would prove to be a very capable leader of the free people of color in the years to come. The free people of color found allies for this fight in a rather unusual place. A band of rebel slaves active in the region 
whom the free people of color had nicknamed the Swiss, after the elite Swiss bodyguards of the French king. The free people of color offered the Swiss their freedom, in exchange for their help in fighting the whites, a deal that seemed almost too good to be true. This makeshift alliance of the Swiss and the free people of color called themselves the Confederates. The Confederate force encountered a contingent of enemy soldiers near the town of Croix de Bouquet. Here, the Confederates proved that they were no force to be trifled with. They outmaneuvered their opponents, leading them into a nearby sugarcane field. The Confederates then lit the extremely flammable sugarcane on fire. The enemy soldiers trapped in the field burned to death. The Confederates carried the day. Scarcely two months later, the free people of color and the whites of Port-au-Prince signed a treaty ending their hostilities. While it is tempting to think that the Confederate victory at Croix de Bouquet was what forced the whites to the negotiating table, more realistically, it was the outbreak of the slave revolt in the north that had really scared them. The whites of Port-au-Prince, many of whom were of a more radical bent than the whites of Le Cap, had a decision to make, and the choice was obvious. They agreed to ally with the free people of color against the slave insurgents in exchange for recognizing their rights. The Concordat of Damien, as it was called, struck a major blow to the rule of white supremacy in Saint-Domingue. The whites of Port-au-Prince agreed to abide by all of the National Assembly's decrees, especially that of March 8th, which granted full political rights to all citizens. The category of citizen was now understood to include the free people of color. A procession was held in Port-au-Prince to celebrate the occasion. White radicals marched arm-in-arm with free-colored militiamen in an unprecedented demonstration of racial harmony. They were greeted with celebratory cannon salvos and cries of unity and fidelity. There was one glaring issue that still needed to be dealt with, however, the Swiss. Yes, the free people of color had indeed promised them their freedom if they were to fight alongside them, but it was thought that rewarding slaves with their freedom for acts of violence against whites would set a bad precedent. They couldn't easily send them back to their plantations, as they had already had a taste of freedom, and it was feared that they would infect the other slaves with the contagion of liberty. So the free people of color concocted a plot to imprison the Swiss and abandon them on the Mosquito Coast, a place where it was said that even the devil himself couldn't survive. Ultimately, the captain who tried to dump them on the Mosquito Coast failed, so he tried, and failed again, to sell them in nearby Belize. After this, he merely dumped them on the coast of Jamaica. The British authorities there were none too pleased with having a group of rebellious slaves in their vicinity, so they repatriated them to Saint-Domingue, where those slaves who had managed to survive the whole ordeal were executed. Now that the free people of color had made their peace with the whites of Port-au-Prince, it seemed that Saint-Domingue as a whole might be one step closer to racial equality. However, this truce was not meant to last. On November 21st, the day the Concordat was to be ratified, a free man of color was insulted in the streets of Port-au-Prince by a white soldier. A brawl ensued that ended with the police arresting the free man of color. By that time, a mob had formed, and was able to overpower the police and lynch the offending man of color on the spot. Soon after, some free men of color tracked down the soldier who had instigated the fight and shot him down in the street. All-out war broke out in Port-au-Prince. The free militiamen of color, outnumbered in the city, retreated. The radical small white inhabitants of the city went on a rampage, going from door to door, killing any free person of color they could get their hands on. A fire broke out in the city for which the free people of color were inevitably blamed. Some 800 houses, two-thirds of the city, was burned to the ground. The brief period of racial harmony and unity had gone up in flames. The free people of color responded to these atrocities by effectively declaring war on the whites yet again. A quote from an anonymous pamphleteer, quote, 
Let us fly, dear friends, to the siege of Port-au-Prince. Let us plunge our blood-stained arms, avengers of perfidy and betrayal, into the breasts of these monsters from Europe. For far too long we have served as the playthings of their passions and their insidious maneuvering. For far too long we have groaned under their yoke. Let us destroy our oppressors, and bury ourselves with them down to the slightest vestige of our shame. Let us tear up by its deepest roots this tree of prejudice." End quote. The free people of color were determined to retake Port-au-Prince and avenge the wrongs done to them by its inhabitants. However, they were at this moment vastly outnumbered, so they did what their predecessor, von Saint-Auger, had refused to do. They turned to the slaves. The free colored leadership made contact with a young man named Hyacinth. Hyacinth was a 21-year-old slave, but despite his youth, his purported spiritual and supernatural abilities allowed him to enjoy the respect of his fellow slaves across the western province. As the free people of color recruited slaves to join them in their attack on Port-au-Prince, Hyacinth was given command of the slave regiments. Before battle, he had convinced his men that death in battle would mean that their souls would return to Africa. During the battle, he led his men, who were armed mainly with machetes and other agricultural implements, charging against the rifles and cannons of the defenders of Port-au-Prince. Hyacinth was at the front of the charge, waving a horsehair talisman over his head, and assuring his men that it was only water coming out of the cannons. His men fought fearlessly, no matter how many of them were gunned down. They fought against the enemy in vicious hand-to-hand combat, and after nearly six hours of this kind of fighting, the Confederation of Slaves and Free Men of Color had pushed back their opponents and were able to surround Port-au-Prince and subject what remained of the city to a prolonged siege. By mid-November 1791, the slave revolt in the north had largely lost its momentum. The insurgents were the masters of the northern plain. This much was undisputed. However, even with their numbers and organizational ability, they had proved unable to take the city of Le Cap as they had originally planned. Their enemies held a strong defensive line that prevented them from spilling over the border into the western province. At this juncture, several thousands of former slaves had died over the course of the rebellion. The devastation they had wrought on the countryside of the north came back to hinder them. They were finding it increasingly difficult to provision themselves. The insurgent leaders, Jean-Francois and Biassou especially, knew acutely of the difficulty of the situation in which they found themselves. How much longer could this rebellion continue, they asked themselves. Fortunately for them, a way out soon presented itself. It was in this political and military context that, on November 29, 1791, a group of three civil commissioners arrived in Saint-Domingue from France. Their names were Saint-Laguerre, Mirbeck, and Rome, and they had been dispatched by the National Assembly to Saint-Domingue to relay word of the new laws regarding the colonies, namely that all decisions pertaining to the colonies would henceforth be made by a colonial assembly, and not by Paris. They had left France before the word of the slave revolt had even made it there, so they were by no means prepared to deal with the situation in which they now found themselves. Jean-Francois and Biassou hoped to take advantage of the commissioner's ignorance of the situation on the ground to secure pardons for themselves and their closest officers. Their hopes were raised when the commissioners announced that there would be a general amnesty for all quote-unquote acts of revolution. Jean-Francois and Biassou signed on to a very eloquent letter to the commissioners, wherein they laid out their proposal. If amnesty was to be granted to some 400 individuals whose names were attached to the document, Jean-Francois and Biassou would personally lead the slaves back into the chains of slavery. To the commissioners, this offer seemed very tempting indeed. Here was a chance to end the destructive slave rebellion, restore order in the colony, and begin the process of restarting its economy all in one fell swoop. 
The colonial assembly, however, refused to enter directly into the negotiations with the insurgents until they first disarmed themselves. The three commissioners acted as intermediaries between the insurgent leaders and the colonial assembly. Negotiations got off to a rocky start when a plantation owner accompanying the commissioners found himself unable to restrain himself and struck Jean-Francois with his whip. The commissioners were able to defuse the situation, and the talks continued to pace. The insurgent leaders let the commissioners know that they were willing to compromise on their original demands, and offered all sorts of concessions. They lowered the amount of people on the amnesty list from 400 to just 60, and as a token of goodwill, they released all the white prisoners in their custody. Still, the colonial assembly would not budge. To negotiate with these men, whom they thought to be no better than beasts, was simply unconscionable. The commissioners were powerless to countermand the will of the colonial assembly, and so the negotiations broke down. By January of the next year, the war had commenced again. Biasu led a daring raid on a hospital on the outskirts of Le Cap, where his mother was being held as a slave. The white soldiers who were patients there were slaughtered in their beds. Before long, the insurgents were emboldened enough to attack the city of Le Cap itself. Gabriel Legros, the white secretary who had been captured by Jean-Francois's men, wrote that since the moment the negotiations fell through, quote, not a day has gone by that was not lit up in flames, end quote. Meanwhile, news of the Saint-Domingue slave rebellion had reached metropolitan France. At this time, the radical left, represented by the Jacobin Club, was ascendant in France. The Jacobins had over a hundred members in the National Assembly, but they were split between the Mountain Faction, led by Robespierre, and the Girondins, led by Jacques-Pierre Brousseau. The men of the Mountain were those whom we associate most closely with the Jacobin Club. They were the sans-culottes, the most radical and furthest left faction in the French Revolution, and the eventual architects of the Reign of Terror. The Girondins were far more moderate, and represented largely the interests of the bourgeoisie, whose fortunes, it must be remembered, were very much tied up in transatlantic commerce. As a result, most Girondins were not predisposed at all to the abolition of slavery, or even to granting rights to the free people of color. However, as they gradually began to better understand the situation in Saint-Domingue, many of them came around to the issue of rights for the free people of color. They came to see that the only way to preserve slavery, and thereby the only way to preserve the colony, was to grant equal rights to the free people of color. On March 24, 1792, the National Assembly declared that the free people of color were to enjoy fully equal rights with the white colonists. Henceforth, there were to be only two categories of people in the colony, free and enslaved, with no distinctions being made among the free. The king signed the decree into law on April 4th. To enforce the decree and see to it that order was restored in the colony, the National Assembly dispatched three more commissioners to Saint-Domingue. Little did they know that these commissioners would end up abolishing slavery in Saint-Domingue forever. It is there that I will leave the narrative for now. Be sure to tune in again in two weeks' time to see what happens next, as the slave rebellion continues to rage on in the north, the free people of color and the white colonists fight amongst themselves in the south, and the three commissioners from France arrive with a piece of news that would fundamentally change the entire conflict. If in the meantime you have any criticisms, questions, or anything else you'd like me to know, please feel free to email me at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact me via Twitter or Facebook, links to which can be found in the episode description. Until two weeks from now, this has been the Historia Dramatica podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Willem Connor, signing off.